Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Welcome to the RazorWire podcast. And today we're going to be discussing the fantastic subject matter of burnout in the security community, as well as the skill shortage that I'm sure most of you who are in the security space have kind of recognized over the last two, three, four years. So today I have Oliver, who you may have seen in other podcasts that we've had, and Stefania. Please introduce yourselves, guys. My name's Oliver Oxford. I'm a security evangelist and strategist with Securonix. In the industry for just over 20 years, I've hacking for dummies, worked as a Gartner analyst, as a pen tester, and uh, more recently, uh, my focus is really on market strategy and also going out and talking about all lots of great security topics. So I have the best job in the world. Fantastic. Stefania. Hi, I'm Stefania Chaplin. I am a solutions architect. I've been in the cybersecurity space for about five years, and before that, I used to be a developer as well and currently working at GitLab in the DevSecOps space. So, which subject shall we hit first? The skill shortage or the burnout? Where should we start? (laughs) Let's start with the skill shortage. I think to to, to kick off the conversation, really, I mean, we've always had, ever since, you know, I mean, I've been in this game for 25 years, we've always had a bit of a skill shortage. It It was less seen in the early days because people saw security really as a kind of IT department thing, which over time became very apparent that it wasn't because, you know, governance, policies, procedures, security awareness, all these types of stuff interact with other areas of business that don't always necessarily like IT getting involved and telling them what to do, especially when it comes to things like security. But I think more than anything, I think the last two years, you know, I seem to be blaming a lot in the last two years, um, has seen quite a significant drop in the amount of infosec people who are actually in the market at the moment. I think I know a, a lot of older infosec professionals at the beginning of the pandemic who kind of they were kind of coming towards the end of their career anyway. They were looking at retirement, and they kind of thought, you know what, if if we're going to be going to lockdown, I'm going to be at home anyway. I think I've had enough of doing infosec. Um, I just want to retire. And I saw a lot of my peers kind of go down that route. There were some that didn't, but I I definitely saw a trend right at the beginning of a number of them kind of just suddenly leaving, which leaves a massive skills void, you know, and an experience void as well. Oliver, let's start with you. You're, You're about as long as I am in the tooth. Did you notice the same kind of thing? No, I've... So oddly enough, I, I've noticed some people retiring, I, but what I've noticed really more is the fact that we have a lot of, you know, we talk about the skills crisis. I don't think it's a skills crisis, it's a recruitment crisis. Mm. I just today saw on LinkedIn two gentlemen who had started taking courses a couple of years ago. One of them wanted to come in from being a lorry driver. I checked it, he's done no certifications. He said he can't get a job. And I understand that as a hiring manager, you're going to look, okay, this guy was a lorry driver. But the truth is we have a skill shortage. I myself, I don't have a degree. I'm German. I benefited from a vocational training program where I was able to do a, a computer science 
diploma without having to go to university, because in Germany they decided, well, we don't need people with a degree to be a system administrator. You know, and, and so there are solutions to the problem. Other countries don't have it in the same degree because they have a different uh, approach to doing the recruitment. But we have people trying to get into the industry. They're not getting past the recruiters. And if you look mm. at the outline of the typical, you know, I, I saw some gentleman the other day say that he saw a job ad for technology. They wanted 10 years experience. He was the inventor and he'd invented it five years ago. <laughs> uh, you know, or we have people stipulating this this crazy list of individual vendors. They don't say you need to do vulnerability assessment. You need to know qualities. Yeah. And you can imagine that when we're starting to hand over the evaluation to AIs, to machine learning, how are you going to get through when you're stipulating that criteria? And so part of it is the fact that there might not be enough people. You know, one in 20 job ads in the US in the moment supposedly is a cybersecurity job opening but we're not helping ourselves because what we want everyone is trying to recruit for talent mm. but most of them don't pay talent money most of them don't offer a talent job i think it's because it is quite a complex field it's not easy to determine what you know you need to have quite a lot of knowledge to be able to assess that to begin with and so we're trying to take shortcuts and it's costing us as a result there are people there we're not tapping into fantastic stefania I mean, you've come into to InfoSec sort of in the last 10 years and, and definitely one of the best up-and-coming InfoSec people I've ever met. What are you seeing from your side of the fence? I mean, are you seeing a lot of people kind of going, wanting to get into that space, having problems getting in? So I get a lot of people reach out to me on social channels being like, how can I get, how can I get into cybersecurity? Um, you know, what tips do you have? I'm looking for a job. And what I tend to find is um, these tend to be quite, I say, young people, early 20s, some graduates, some that might be mid or late 20s, but they've been working in a different industry and trying to move across. Um, and so I try and give the best advice I can because I appreciate sometimes, yes, if you get the qualification, you know, that's not enough. So I tend to give more kind of tactical advice, like, have you looked at bug bounty programs? Mm. Hey, if you can, you know, try hacking something and prove that you can, then guess what? You can probably secure it as well. Um, part of what I did when I was, I actually did computer science. Then I spent four or five years in commercial roles, nothing to do with tech. And then I moved back to tech. And as I was transitioning, I was just going to meetups because networking is where you can really start to understand and get the exposure. And a lot of people who want to move into security, they don't necessarily know what that means. They're like, do I want to be red team or do I want to be blue team? Do I even know what that means? So for me, I'm always about advising people, you know, networking, bug bounties, trying to get some hands-on experience because, you know, I agree to the point about recruitment, uh, being a recruiter as well. Recruiters like square boxes. They're like, oh, yeah, we need Qualif. You know, you need to be able to read JSON and, you know, vulnerability management, which isn't that hard, you know, to gain. So I think, yeah, to the point, we definitely need to look wider. For, but the people that do want to move, there are other ways to make yourself stand out. I could cry. Before my first security job, I was in IT and I started writing on forums. I was contributing, I was writing up vulnerabilities on packets, exploit and everything. And that ultimately led to me getting a career in cybersecurity because you showed engagement. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. I mean, you know, when I got in, I, I was in IT myself, you know, I went through first, second, and then I was kind of on third line support. And believe it or not, it was around, around the time firewalls started to become, you know, commercially viable. There were still a lot of companies out there were going raw out to the internet. And the internet was a very wild and strange place back then, I can tell you that. Take that from the old guy. Yeah, some of the stuff you'd see back then was just crazy. 
But it was all still very, very early phase. I mean, AV used to be the big thing. Everybody wanted AV and it was horribly expensive back then. And we'd seen the first few viruses and all the rest of it. And I kind of looked at it and thought, oh, security, I think, because I've always been quite keen on warfare. I've always been quite keen on history and, and security in general. And I just thought, well, security is going to have to be a big thing in this, in, in, in the IT industry. Little did I know, you know, I got into what's now called cybersecurity. We just called it security back then, or IT security. And then suddenly governance became a thing. Policies, procedures, risk management, incident response. And I, I realized the, the, the size of the subject matter was actually pretty daunting. And back then, when you're in you know, security, what we now term as information security or cybersecurity, you kind of had to know everything because you had to do everything because there wasn't many of us there. And a lot, there wasn't the, you know, the internet information that you had back then. Oh, God, I'm sounding old. That there is now, you know, if you want to find out about vulnerabilities, it's comparatively a lot easier to find out how to fix them, that kind of thing now than it was 20 years ago. I mean, kind of fly by the seat of your pants a lot of the time. But as I kind of grew into my career, what I saw was a lot of people who, the, you know, the very first security, information security people were seen as very much gatekeepers and, and what we would turn as the no men. You know, can I have access to my email from home? No. Can I have this program because I need it for a business reason? No. And we were kind of vilified because it's like, oh, just bypass them completely. And, and the early security people, you know, didn't do us later on security people much in the way of favours. That's not to say they didn't have, have good points, but, you know, I think it put a lot of people off going into security in that early early time period. And as, as Oliver, we were talking about earlier on, and funny enough, um, I've spoken with Stefania about a few times, development. We were innovating new solutions, new products, new ways of, of making, you know, working better, working quicker, more efficiently. But the security element wasn't being put into it either. You know, so it left a lot of vulnerabilities, it left a lot of holes. And again, the few times you get in front of developers, you talk to them about how to secure the code. And needless to say, the conversations went down a route where certain colorful language was used quite frequently and told where, to, where you know, you could go out the door with it. Now it's all about DevSecOps, you know, it's all about securing things in development. And there's so many more roles that are available for people coming into this space than there ever was in the past. You know, you could be like Stefania, a developer who gets in to do kind of like vulnerability sort of management, vulnerability scanning, bit of pen testing and DevSecOps. And you could never touch a policy, you know, write a security policy. It's useful obviously to know because I think everybody should have a baseline level of knowledge. But I am coming across people, for instance, pen testers, and all they've ever done is pen testing. They've never done anything else. They don't want to do anything else. And we still have a lot of people coming in from IT, I've noted, in this day and age. Still a hell of a lot of people recruiting in from IT. But I'm also noticing there's quite a fair few lawyers coming into it. They're coming into the more governance aspect. And there's even some CISOs I've met who've never done IT at all. They come from a financial background. And it's, it's crazy. Yet, I mean, we've been recruiting for quite a while for a number of positions, and we're finding it really tough to get people 
through the door with the relevant experience. And I've, I've all about mentoring, but when you need somebody at the higher end who's been doing, say, for instance, PCI DSS, you know, you have to have a very minimum level of knowledge and certifications to even go for that certification. So when QSAs retire and leave, it's hard to kind of replace them. So you lose a lot of that knowledge. And they're not mentoring the next group of, you know, up-and-coming InfoSec people because they're not there to mentor them. Yeah, it's an interesting one, mentorship, because I've been very fortunate to have been mentored. So I'm a big advocate for that, because especially when I came in, you know, five, six years ago from development, not really knowing anything about security, being like, oh, open source. Oh, it's not full of rainbows and unicorns. That's a problem. Oh, software licenses. What are those? Yeah, so I came in very vanilla. And then it really does make a difference. So it's kind of to your point, you know, if 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 the more experienced peers are retiring, how do you kind of start to fill that gap? Because I think mentorship definitely accelerates it. And I talk about it a lot in terms of the importance of mentorship. But yeah, I'll just say that the importance of it, we need to, you know, maybe have more more processes, make it, um, you know, more generally available. Because even I have that people reach out to me on Twitter and then I'm like, okay, you, you know, book half an hour and I just join the call. And I'm like, so you've got the next 25 minutes. Tell me a little bit about yourself, what you're looking to achieve, and I'll see if I can help. Go. So even just ad hoc meetings like that, I hope I make a difference to people. But when you have more structured stuff, so like what you mentioned about PCI, that can't quite be fixed on a 25-minute phone call. So, you know, what do you do mm. after that? You also made an interesting point, James, about people coming in from adjacent areas. That's the future. The security mm. system of the future is not going to be an engineer. We're having people come in from data science, mathematics. We're having people come in from behavioral psychology. We're having people coming in with a criminology law enforcement. They're not going to be coding. They're consumers of security data and security technologies and information. And so I think we're going to have a, uh, a much broader pool in the future of people who don't have that traditional technical background. And we have to do better knowledge transfer because that's really mentorship is great. But as, as you said, Stefania, it's not something you can quickly transfer. We need a way to be able to transfer knowledge at a higher volume to a greater amount of people. And that means also understanding that most of the audience is not going to be that technical, which I think a lot of security people struggle. We have a lot of more senior people who have a very old-fashioned way of looking at this. They're not necessarily open. They believe you have to be able to do Python, you have to know IP yeah. addressing and so on. But that's not the reality for a lot of people in the job going forward. And if you look at our fixation on these certifications, there's an inhibitor right there. We're going to have to move beyond that. We're going to have to expand the certifications and the skills that we're looking for. We have to look for attitude. I absolutely 100% agree with that. I always look for attitude whenever, I, um, whenever I'm going to sort of bring in kind of newcomers to InfoSec. And I've, I've mentored more than a few over the years, you know, given them a chance to get in and really kind of prove themselves. And what I've found, you know, one of the first things I teach them is psychology and understanding how to communicate with people. Because my experience, and, and Stefania, you know, question me, you know, tell me off if I'm wrong, but I find that quite often there's a lot of hostility towards security people. And I think maybe that puts some people off from fields that have interacted with them within a business. They see the security people kind of being called all kinds of names and told to go away and people circumventing the, the rules that are put in place. Or, God forbid, you see management actually kind of go, almost going against their own security people. They've got them there really only in name. And a lot of people look at it and go, I, I don't want to be that poor person sitting in the corner office that everybody hides away from whenever they come out the door. 
in normal times, I would get quite a good stream of people who would contact me and ask me, similar to, to Stefania, how do I get in? What do I need to do? Especially from the kind of student community who are just coming out of university. And it's kind of hard to tell them anything. And, and a good point you make, Oliver, about uh, the certs being a barrier. They are. They genuinely are. I mean, you mentioned job specs saying you must know Qualys or you must know this product. You must know Palo Alto firewalls or whatever. <laughs> the, the, the other one that you mentioned about the what was it the uh, the inventor of a particular type of technology being told told he hasn't got because he hasn't got ten years in it. I mean, I've seen that a lot. You know, must have twenty years worth of experience in PCI, and it's like uh, you can't have that because it's not been around that long. <laughs> well, not yet, anyway. I think we need to completely revisit the whole certification thing because I never went to uni either. I didn't go to university. I got in. Age of 18, I got into IT and I, I kind of didn't look back. I was quite lucky to get into IT because there was a bit of a barrier back then as well. You know, must have a certain amount of years worth of experience. You were, you were kind of stuck trying to find an employer who wanted somebody nice and cheap just to kind of help out the poor IT guy who back then was themselves flying by the seat of their pants. And that's kind of how I got into it. But nowadays, there's, there's whole career paths that, I think we need to to look at as a, as a security community and start working on on making a it easier. I think the UK government I read the other day are, are still banging on. They've been doing this on and off for years. My mentor, uh, original mentor um, John, he used to talk about it a lot about this registrar of information security professionals. And to to work in this game, you have to be on some kind of register. I'm like, what do you talk? That's another barrier right there. So how how do you work with enough experience to get the certs required to get on this mythical register that they're probably going to put some kind of requirements on to, for you to to access? But you're never gonna you're never gonna get the experience to be able to get there in the first place. I haven't heard about the register, but in my head, I'm like, no. <laughs> um, you have to take more of a fluid approach because, especially with the skill shortage and issues with recruitment, and especially a lot of recruiters don't always know what they're talking about. So, you know, sometimes when you're talking about tools or coding language, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got, um, I don't know, say cloud formation, but I don't have Terraform. A technical person would understand, oh, okay, so AWS, you know, environment permissioning, but the recruiter might just say, oh, no. So there's kind of a degree of that. And I think having something like a registering body, to me, that sounds very legal. And then like, I'm like, I, I don't want to join a bar. Like, even for me, that would be a put off. So I think, yeah, taking a more fluid approach to hiring and what you were saying before, James, I always look for someone with an interest in whatever mm. the tech is. Because if you have an interest, you can nurture that and that can become a passion and the skills will come across. There are some people who are just in it for the money. They've got the skills and mm. they're just going to be stable. That's fine. But if someone doesn't have the skills, as long as they have the interest and willing to learn, I think that's enough. If I can draw an analogy, if you're looking for a builder, you don't say you have to be able to use a DeWalt drill. You're looking for a builder, you expect him to possess skills across his toolbox. And we don't extend that into cybersecurity. We don't say, I'm looking for an expert in security monitoring. I'm looking for an expert in XYZ theme. And that's very specific. And I presume there's, it, it's a takeaway from bookkeeping where there are official certifications which qualify you. But there's an element, as you mentioned, Stefani, it's a, it's a form of gatekeeping. And you do that when you have an exclusive club and there are too many people trying to get in. We don't have that. We have the opposite problem. We're trying to get more people in. The other thing with having this very I mean, rigid list of certifications, 
somebody like me just looks at it and says, I'm not even applying. The people who apply will be the wrong people. They're the ones who do the checkbox exercise of getting the certificate. Or they're the mm. ones who lie about having the certificate. But someone who's realistic looks at that, and I would say, I don't want to work for a company that doesn't understand how to hire somebody. So they're starving themselves of resources as well. It's interesting, actually. I mean, people kind of come to me and say, oh, you know, do I need to... I've got all these certificates in information security, and I kind of look at them and go, yeah, I've, I've got loads as well. I've probably stopped paying more certification memberships than you've had hot dinners. But I, I just, I, I mean, I maintain my CISM and obviously my QSA status because that's that's what I need to. But I think all the rest of them, I've just, I've forgotten. I don't even know what they are anymore, I think. I think I was one of the first semantic engineers in the country, believe it or not. God knows. It's, it's I think newcomers, I think, I like to think they're not put off, but I, I do worry that, yes, it's a good career to be in. Fania said something very, very poignant there. Some come in it for the money. I've met a few people who've come in for the money and it always frustrates me a bit because you've got to have a bit of a love of security or a love of, of that kind of space really to do well in it. Otherwise, you just end up kind of ticking boxes, as you pointed out, Oliver. But there's plenty of much better trades that you can go to where you can make a hell of a lot more money with a hell of a lot less stress. I mean, I see I, quite often on LinkedIn. Good example. I see a lot of I'll see a lot of funny memes about cybersecurity, and there's that one with the crying kid on the bench. Oh, why are you crying? I'm in cybersecurity, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. I mean, and and auditing as well. There's a lot of sort of really tough and and not very experienced auditors that, again, turn a lot of people off going into that auditing field. I mean, I've been auditing for years and years and years, and I know what I'm looking at. But every now and then you come across other auditors and you're like, do you actually know what you're auditing? Do you, have you done this before? Because, you know, I don't think you're, you're picking the right decision here. Which leads us neatly into burnout. Have either of you ever been burnt out? Yes. So last year, I do quite a lot of public speaking. And I think last June, I think I had 13 events just in June. I had about 50 over the year. One a week I can handle. Like, I can do two in a day. But like 13 in a month, that, and it was June, so the weather was getting nice. And the way I think about burnout, there was this really interesting Harvard Business Review article I read. And if you imagine energy, high and low, and mood, high and low. So you've got high mood, high energy. That's great. That's where you want to be. High mood, low energy. That's replenishing. And it's important if you want to work most efficiently, you want to go between those two, you know, allowing your energy to kind of dip down and then go back up. What a lot of people are ending up at the moment is high energy, low mood, which is survival mode. It's like I'm getting stuff done, but I'm not I'm not necessarily in a great place, but at least I'm productive. And then when you have burnout, which is the worst case scenario, low energy, low mood, you're really not feeling great. And what used to be easy or not take very long takes a lot longer. And that's the hardest place to recover from. I was fortunate. I went uh, to a self and yoga retreat for a while. So then that really helped. Obviously, not everyone else can do that. But it was just for me, it was really important to actually switch off. And turn off emails and actually say no to speaking events. And that then I kind of, it took a while, but then I kind of came back. And like I said, moving between high and low energy is, you can't be high energy all the time. That's that's what I've learned from the experience. And that's a very good way of looking at it. I mean, okay, public speaking, I think is one thing, but um, I think for a lot of people in the industry, it's more around support working in the SOC. Mm. Uh, I've done 12-hour 
night shift in the soccer over the weekend. I did that for 18 months, four days on, four days off, three days on, three days on. And if you imagine you're in this twilight cycle where everyone around you, the entire world, your family, your friends are on a different clock, and your work is repetitive, you're staying at a screen, there's tickets coming in. That immediately, that's a recipe for burnout. That's why the retention rate in the sock is so low. Nobody picks that as a career to stopping off point. And of course, the solution to that really is diversification. You need to have a more diverse day. Your job has to be big. You can do a week or two weeks of that. Then we need to rotate you somewhere else. But this repetitiveness, I think, is one, one source of it. The second source is, is the uh, false expectations. We mentioned about the certifications. If you think of how many technologies and fields the average company has to manage now in security, from threat intelligence to incident response to firewalling to IAM, in some companies, that's a couple of people wearing all of those hats. And it's not realistic for them to be good at everything, but the expectation is there, the pressure is there. I think that's also another recipe for burnout. So our job is very demanding by definition. Nobody cares if things work. They only shout at you if they don't. The appreciation isn't there. Nobody ever comes along and says to you, hey, good job for keeping us secure. <laughs> um, so, so there's this whole, this whole, I would say, storm of different factors, which mean that while our job nominally is really exciting and interesting, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's boredom punctuated with terror. And so I, I think that that plays into it as well. You need to get past that early stage. A lot of people don't. Uh, we have a lot of people in the mid-level. We don't have a lot of people on the entry level now because it's not a long-term. I mean, how long do you want to work in tech? For me, it was a couple of years. If you don't grow out of that, like if you're doing it for 20 years, I think not very few people are able to do that just because of the nature of the work. Yeah, I've, I've, I suffered quite badly from burnout a couple of times in my career. One was pretty early on, actually. As I kind of alluded to earlier on, it was at a time when security people really weren't looked at very well. Most of the you know most companies didn't have one, or if they did, it was it was just one person. You can take day you know the, the reason I burnt out was I was advising people on what to do and nobody was listening, and I thought is it is it me communicating wrong? Am I doing something? Am I saying the wrong thing here? And in many ways, I kind of was. I, I look back now. I mean, if I could go back in time and sit next to myself, this is a question I always ask on, on like say, Stefania's had this one. If I could go back to myself when I got my first security role, I would probably sit down next to myself and say, look, chill out. It's okay. People won't listen to you, but eventually they will. Just bite your time. Just keep giving them the same message and eventually they'll do it. But Quite early on in my career, first time I suffered real burnout, I, I just woke up one morning and I sat there at the end of the bed. It's all right, I didn't sob or cry or anything, but I sat there at the end of the bed and I found it really difficult to just get up and go to work. I was just like, look, I'm doing this every day. I'm trying to protect a group of people who don't want to be protected. You know, they, they never buy the tools. They never, when bonus time comes around, you never get the bonus because you're not in a rock star position. And it was quite hard to handle. Three or four weeks later, the I love you virus hit the, um, hit the world and was ripping its way through the city like no tomorrow. Um, and I saw quite some quite early reports and managed to kind of update the AV, funnily enough, the AV, yeah, that was when it was important, and block off those content, you know, the, the, the messages for, you know, in the subject line at the, um, at the email and claw back a load of them as they were coming in. And we managed to get it done early. Um, we did get affected by it. 
And there was all kinds of congratulations from the bosses and all the rest of it. And I, I had a real uplift. I thought, yeah, you know, I've done a good job. And it was, it was, I was working for a Japanese company at the time. And they have a tendency to reward you quite well when you do well. It was all completely forgotten three weeks later. Not even that. Maybe a week, two weeks. But for, for five seconds, I was rock star enough to, to kind of uh, pull me out of that burnout. I think the second time I burnt out, it was probably just before I started Razorthorn, actually because the credit crunch had hit. And as usual, I was working for a firm at the time who decided to make a whole host of people redundant. And the entire security team went just like that. IT can do it. And I must admit, I sat there kind of in the pub after several pints, I must admit. And so why am I doing this? I I can't. Getting a job is going to be a nightmare because, again, security is the last one of the last things people tend to recruit for after a downturn. You know, they want to upskill people who can help them become more efficient, more effective, better at um, delivery, that kind of thing, making more money. Security, not so much, you know. But that's when I decided to start Razorthorn for my sins. And then the third time I suffered burnout was, was definitely the pressures from running the business, being one of the main consultants, having all the customers and having to deal with all the both sides of the fence and and I just need to go on holiday at that point. I think uh, Stefania's got the right idea. Last time I saw her, she said, oh, I'm going on holiday. See you later. I was like, oh, thanks. I've been on holiday for about three years. But I think it's a really big problem within the industry. And I've known a few people who've, who've, who've actually had mental breakdowns. You know, they're, they're firms who have had security events, really bad security events. And it wasn't down to anything they didn't do or they could have done better. It just happens. Sometimes it just happens. You know, part of security, and I think a big part of security for those of you out there who want to get into it, is about learning how to do instant response and how to be adaptable throughout an event actually occurring. But after the after the event had finished, of course, the inevitable finger pointing started to happen and they were pulled up through, you know, through the mud and basically set on fire and told, you know, it's all your fault, see you later. And and these are people who put a lot of heart and soul into trying to secure the environment only to to get thrown under the bus uh, when it all went bad. No, I I think you're absolutely right. We mentioned earlier that we want people to be passionate. But the downside to that is that we have a lot of people in the industry who don't switch up. They do security at work. They do IT or tech in private. I don't think that helps. You need some kind of a balance. You need to be well-rounded. You need some distraction from it. You need to have something which is not to do with your core job to get you back on, you know, as Stefania mentioned, to get that, that energy level back up when it's down. And we don't. We have people who are quite, you know, focused on it to the point where they will just, just I would say, read about it. They will, they will watch movies about it. It's not just their job. It's their hobby. It's their life. It's mm. their identity. And I think that's when you have a higher incidence of burnout. You'd think not because you're passionate about it, but you're getting emotionally invested. When I'm in an incident response process, I am analytical. There's no emotion involved. I get emotional afterwards after it's done. In that moment, I try to focus on the problem, not on what it means. Getting a, a little bit of detachment from that and not feeling like you have to be a martyr, like you're carrying the world on your shoulders. Mm. Because I think that's also very common in our industry. You have to um, take a little bit of a step back in between 
and do something which doesn't directly relate to that. Not everything has to be worked. Yeah, I think if I look at my generation, us millennials, I think you've heard a few things because as you're saying that, I was like, oh yeah, I do a lot of reading. I like, I watch documentaries about security or about video. Well, my side thing is watching ones about video game development, like all my favorite PS1 games from when I was young. <laughs> but yeah, it's about, that's the issue and especially, well, this is an old issue now, but with mobile technology, you have your email, you have Slack, you have everything on your phone it's really hard to switch off. Like I had to get in the habit of I've got a work profile. So on the weekends, like from Friday evening, I would actually switch it off because otherwise I would just on Saturday, I'd just be bored. And then I just refresh and then just still, you know, be immersed. And then it's, yeah, it's this, um, especially when you're talking to people who are more junior in their career, they have this, well, they might have this need to excel and this ambition. And they're like, the more hours I put in, the better I will become. And I'll read from all these sources. But then to the high and low energy point, you know, when are you, when are you actually replenishing? And one of the other things we mentioned, or I mentioned about holidays, I was reading an article about someone who hadn't taken a holiday in 10 years, but was very happy. And the way that she did it was she took five minute holidays. So when she went to go get this in America, she went to go get her mail from the end of her garden. She'd like stop and look and listen to the birds or like when you're eating, like I am surrounded by plants. And usually I'm standing here talking, but this is actually normally where I eat and I eat here and I don't take my phone or any screens and I just have 20 minutes where I literally just look at plants because you have the beneficial, you know, the benefits of nature. Because I think that's the thing about burnout. We, especially working in cybersecurity, IT, we spend almost our whole day looking at a screen. And especially with the pandemic, it's even more so because we're not really in the offices. So that's why it's so important when I'm not working. I will close my screen and I just go just go walk around because then you can actually interact because if you're at a screen the whole time, that really, yeah, really doesn't help with burnout. Just out of interest, Stefania, from people such as yourself who've been in sort of five, six years, or maybe even earlier, do you see a higher range of people who are p- potentially going to burn out really quickly if they carry on the way they're going? Because again, sort of 10, 15 years ago, I mean... I couldn't imagine sort of going home and check. I mean, I'd do a little bit. If something came on the news, I'd be interested. Or if I something crossed my path or somebody called me up and said, oh, this is interesting thing. But, you know, I, I switched off myself completely. That's it. When I'm, when I'm not at work, short of some kind of catastrophic incident of galactic proportions, I'm, I'm not working. And I've been very good at, at keeping that. But I have noticed with some of the, some of the younger people they don't seem to be able to switch off. They don't seem to be able to kind of... And I, I've, I've actually had people who worked for me and I've said, put the bloody phone down, put your email down, close your laptop. And I, if they're watching this, they'll know who they are. <laughs> Stop working. Let's sit down and have a conversation without plugging yourself in. You know, I know it's important, but turn off. Just, just please for five minutes. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Are you seeing a lot of that? I see that amongst all of my peers. I think we're getting better at it now we're a bit older and we try and have lives, but especially beginning of our career, it was normal to work evenings, not always weekends, uh, no offense, but you know, we're not Americans. So, but even then it would be like Sunday, meet up. It'd be like, oh yeah, Sunday evening, start checking my email, start planning for the next week. Um, And that's across, that's just not across tech, that's across, you know, all the industries. And I think it is a bit of a millennial 
um, well, and potentially younger problem with, you know, because we have our mobile phones and we want to stay connected and we're passionate and the whole ethos of our generation is we really want to care about what we're doing and we have that whole value piece mm. and we want to know why and then we're fully invested. So then we want to give our everything and that leads to burnout because if you're giving everything, you, that's not sustainable. So I would say what you were describing, switching off after work. Wow, what's that? And that's something I've definitely had to work on. But even then, sometimes I'm just bored. I'm watching TV or, or watching something and then I might just you know scroll slack and especially when you're working at global companies something is always happening so someone in America might have a question that I know the answer to so I'm like oh a bit of dopamine I'm helping someone else and that's a really hard pattern to get out of which I myself know I struggle with a lot. Stefania because it was just one quick one as well uh, do you feel that, you, that, that people in your generation have to really prove themselves to to the powers that be you know the bosses maybe the CISOs or you know, um, CEOs, that kind of thing. Do you think it's it's because we know I never really cared about that. I just cared about like protecting the environment long enough not to get not to get emails come to the boss's office because uh, we need to have a chat. Which let's face it, nobody ever really wants to see that email cross it yeah you know, cross their path. Not unless I know that it's a good chat. Do you feel that that it's gotten worse? You know, and that that some of your peers are really finding it troubling that they have to work at that level in order to be relevant or to get seen? I think it's, I don't think that those in that space see it as a problem because it's so normalized. Because if you look at myself, our generation, we had the, you know, financial rec- uh, recession. And I looked at, you know, unemployment data. If you look at millennials and what we had, and you had the euro crisis after that, and you had like seven, eight years of, you know, instability or lower productivity. When you look at Gen Z, they're starting to enter the workforce. Yes, you had COVID, but because of furlough and all these other things, youth unemployment is back. And actually Gen Z are probably going to do better than millennials because when we joined, it's like, oh no, there's no jobs. We really have to work hard. We're being underpaid, but we're grateful we're being employed. And I think that stigma has stuck not only in overworking, but also at least with my peer group in terms of salary negotiation. Um, you know, I speak to, I've got friends in Gen X and then I tell them the stories about what my colleagues are doing, well, what my friends are doing and what they're being paid. And they're like, wow, that's, um, that's well, obviously not, you know, late, slave labor, but it's, it's definitely, I think, a generational thing. And then it's coupled with the new technology, which means that, you know, we don't switch off and we really want to work and then we want to be successful, but we've been kind of stifled from the beginning. I, I mean, you know, what I find interesting about this always being on, you mentioned earlier, burnout often occurs during an incident. But yeah, if you're already running on 110 and then you have an incident, that's that's why you need to have a little bit of balance because our job is peaks and troughs. If you were tired going into Christmas and locked for Jay here, you were dead afterwards. And so we have to keep some spare capacity because we have these, these huge incidents. I don't think they help. I mean, you know, to what Stefania said about the generational thing, every generation has a different experience. I'll be honest, mm-hmm. I, I, we've had uh, an economic crisis every 10 to 15 years on average. My parents grew up with the, with the Saudi oil crisis as an example. My father joined the English military because there were no jobs. That was in the 70s. So it's not that an unusual experience compared to the technology that you have. I think that has a much bigger impact where we have no parallel to that. Although compared to the generation before us who didn't even have telephones, we were already on that slippery slope. So it's a constant change and every generation of their problems are new because we have to because things change so quickly. But I, I'm just saying about that, like, okay, for that, look at all the possibilities you do have. We didn't have the internet. You're looking at the cons. We didn't have the pros. 
we weren't able to organize. We didn't have that connectivity. When I started hacking, I had to learn it by myself. I went on to um, really cryptic online, you know, almost like um, BBSs and stuff to learn the information. So some of the challenges you have are compensated for some of the benefits, the availability of information, the availability of people to mentor you. When we were there, James, it was ground zero. We were inventing it. There was no path to follow, you know. So, yeah. but, I, but, but not to trivialize it, I think you're right. You have a harder time than we do. And I'm just saying there are, everyone has a different experience based on where they are in history. You can't choose the time when you live. You just mm. have to make the most out of it, you know. <laughs> and, and Stefania, I mean, you, you make a good point. You know, the, the generation of sort of uni students, people just getting into their careers, not just InfoSec, but every career in the last two years is kind of, you know, if you, if you finished university just before that pandemic and lockdown hit, you're kind of screwed because you weren't going to get a job because people were being shed like water. You wouldn't have gotten a job over that year because, well, nobody really did anything. I think we spent a lot of time sitting in our gardens wondering what was going to happen. And then, of course, we came out of it in the UK, at least. And then we went straight back into another one. So, you know, I know people who, it's quite funny, actually. I was talking to a, to, to a friend of mine, and she said, I joined the company kind of at the beginning of the pandemic when everything was locked down. I've never actually met anybody from my office. And I'm like, how do you kind of, pardon the expression, but shoot the shit, just chat, build a relationship? I mean, you can't build a relationship through a screen. You've got to meet up with people. You've got to kind of sit and chat to them. Otherwise, I do think possibly that the whole, if we carry on with this constant working from home and this constant level of fear of what's going on in the outside world, it is going to get not just to, to, to InfoSec people, but to a lot of things, a lot of people. And every time we see a big event like the pandemic, like the credit crunch back in 2007, 2008, we see a massive sudden rise cybercrime, huge rise in cybercrime. Because a lot of people who lost their jobs who wouldn't normally commit cybercrime suddenly have to feed their families, you know. And we're talking about people in Eastern Europe, we're talking about people in parts of the world where if you don't, if you don't have a job, you don't get money, you don't eat. So it's easy if you've got any skills whatsoever to turn on to the dark side. But now we've got a whole generation of people who are coming into the, the workforce, especially security people. They've never actually met any of the people that they're talking to and they're trying to help secure. I mean, I always talk about how hard it was in my early career to convince um, non-security people that I wasn't that horrible demon that was coming down to ruin their day. You know, And I did a lot of that through going for a pint with them, going for a coffee with them just sitting in a meeting room and just chatting to them about sometimes about work, sometimes about you'd find commonalities like, you know, if you had children and they had children or that kind of thing, you know, it's, it's, you don't get that anymore. It's like, right, meetings finished, leave, email, 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 email. No, I, I, I think to be honest with you, we have to look at how people, I'm an introvert. It's been the best two years for me. Mm. And extroverts, what more social interaction. As an introvert, I'm quite happy minimizing that I need it. I want to meet my team colleagues, but a lot of my work is focused on reading, writing, and thinking. Once again, it's not really a social exercise, mm. but I, this has been bad. Before that, I was able to work from home. I was able to pop into an office. I was able to tap into that energy and into that group of people when I needed to. And even as an introvert, I'm at the point now where I wish we were interacting a lot more. 
But but I, I know there have been studies which have shown that for women or um, various minorities, this has also been a good time because they've been able to not be dominated face to face. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. I think training on boarding is a lot more difficult. I think that we can do team meetings rather than having to come into the office every day, or you can do one or two days a week. But you're right, we need some social interaction. It's um, it's it's alone the team building, the getting to know somebody. Once you've met somebody once, afterwards, a, a virtual meeting is much easier. Yeah, so I can give a, a biased perspective because at GitLab we're 100% remote. Um, mm. So we've never had an office and we've just IPO'd. We're doing quite well. I can't say anything else. But something that we have that I really like is something called a coffee chat, which is um, we have this bot. It's called Donut. It sets you up with someone random in the company. So my day two, I was actually talking to someone in Nicaragua. I showed them my plants. They took me outside and I met their banana trees, which was great. I was like, wow, this is an awesome company. But it's also good because I haven't met any of my team. And it means that I can just put this like meeting in and then we just talk about, oh, where do you live? Oh, do you have any family? Oh, what do you do in your spare time? And I think especially whilst we're in this remote and um, hybrid world, because I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, five days a week anytime soon, if ever. But I think it's important to have those non, uh, you know, invest time in non-work interaction, be it on a screen or ideally now that we're, you know, we're, we're opening up, um, you know, in person, because like we've all said, you do need to have that in-person interaction because a lot of the time when we are coming from security, like we've said, you can be the bad guy. So something I always try and work on, the non-verbal, the like softly, softly, like, hi, I'm security, you know, the empathetic approach. I don't want to be the bad guy. I just don't want us to be on the front news. Do you want your commit to be the one that gets us hacked? Probably not. Um, so, you know, security with a smile, uh, because with what you've discussed about, you know, security being the bad guy, I have heard about that and I've seen that a bit, but I think mm. maybe it's the millennial softly, softly. I think it's more of a collaborative. Yeah, we're all working for the same goal kind of attitude. So I'm optimistic about the future, but I think at least whilst we are still virtual, it is important to, you know, have these, you know, authentic relationships outside of work. I, I like the, the the security with a smile. If we ever do merch, I'm going to put that on a mug <laughs> next to a picture of your face. You know, Stefania, security with a smile. Um, yes, yeah, the new I, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I learned I learned pretty quickly. You know, I, I saw my 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 bosses in, and peers in security or people who were a, a bit more advanced than me taking that hard ass attitude and not making themselves any friends at all in fact and i very quickly figured out i didn't want to go down that route i mean don't get me wrong you know when you need to be a bit tough on people you can you you need to develop the, the chops to be a bit tough especially and and you mentioned it brilliantly actually oliver about turning off everything when you're doing instant response you you know sometimes you can be investigating some really horrible events really nasty stuff more so maybe in the early days of infosec than than nowadays but You'd come across stuff that would that 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 would you know chill you to the core, and you had to just turn it off. You had to. It's, I suppose it's a bit like a, a nurse or a doctor. You, you, you know, you're, you're there to do your job, and if you think too hard about what you're doing in bad situations, it can have a real serious effect, and it can mean you know you miss stuff or you lose stuff. And I think, I don't know. I think again, going back to Stefania's thing, security with a smile. I found a lot more positive outcomes have come from taking that kind of approach that that we're all in this together you know i'm not going to just tell you you have to secure something i'm actually going to sit down and work with you on what 
is palatable to you and what will be acceptable to me. And hopefully between us, we can figure something out. Good tip for any of you out there. IT people love donuts and coffee. Bring copious of donuts and coffee. I mean, no, amount- no, not millennials. They like they're health conscious, man. Okay, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I, I, I still think plenty of millennials are like a, a you know like a donut. I don't think anybody gets out of that one, not unless you're diabetic like me. Probably too many donuts or smoothies. <laughs> smoothies, smoothies and donuts. Smoothies and I don't know. Uh, now, now I'm there. Smoothies and donuts. Amazing. A nice little flat flat. Snack flatter will have some berries, some nuts, some croissants. Oh, wow. Really health conscious. But uh, no, I think you're right, Stefania. And and I think if we can if we can chill out a little bit and maybe kind of as a as a community, as a security community, kind of maybe drive the message home a little bit more about we're not the bad guy as you term it. We're not we're not here to piss you off. We're not here to ruin your day. Maybe things would get easier to do what we need to do, and maybe uh, it, it will prevent us from burning out. I mean, I don't think you can ever stop burnout when you do the same thing over and over again for 30, 40 years. I mean, let's face it, anybody would get peed off with that, As much, no matter if you love it or not. The, I mean, I like, believe it or not, I like auditing and I like doing PCI DSS uh, QSA work. But there are times where I have to I do an audit and I pull out that report on compliance, the same report on compliance, the blank one that I have to fill out. And you look at page one and then you look at page 250 and realize that it's, it's going to be a much bigger document by the time you finish with that client and auditing that client. And you're like, I just don't want to do it. <laughs> I, just, I just can't do it anymore. But you do because you have to. But, yeah. but what can we do about it? You know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I worked at HP back before they kind of killed themselves. And uh, they had an interesting approach, just like IBM, that they didn't force you into a managerial path if you were a good technician. I was a master-level consultant, so you were still able to... And and I think that's the the key, not not keeping someone in one single role forever. Even if you have a SOC, you can rotate who does first, second line threat intelligence and does a little bit of, of research. You can rotate these functions. They shouldn't be static. And if you have a lot of engineers... You need to give them a career path. Mm. It shouldn't just be engineer or manager. There needs to be a, a, a parallel on the engineering side. I think the big companies, you know, Gartner, where I came from, GitHub, where you are, they have this down to a T. But if you go to less technology oriented companies, they don't. And I think that's a big contributor. So we have to start thinking of these jobs just differently. We have to start thinking in terms of functions, not job titles. Like they can be rotated, you can move people on. Then you avoid burnout. You have to keep people interested, you know? Oh, God, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, and you're absolutely correct. I think I must admit, there have been times where I can feel myself burning out and then a customer will come and say, oh, I've got this, uh, got this quandary, I've got this conundrum and I can't quite figure it out. Can you have a look at it and tell me what you think? And you look at it and you think, oh, this is new. And suddenly, all, all of a sudden, everything's much better. The The... Fatigue goes away and you're like, ah, right, okay. And you couldn't, and I've seen people have that moment as well, you know, especially sort of when I've given them just enough knowledge, say PCI DSS, I've talked about that a few times, that suddenly they get what they need to do. And it's it's like that that light bulb moment, that ping moment. And it kind of blows away all that fatigue, and you're like, oh right, okay. But I think you're right. Uh, you know, and, and it almost feeds back into that first part what we were talking about with the skill shortage. We do need to rotate people around. We can't have people 
you know, going to managerial positions if that that's not what they want to do. And I think my generation and yours, Oliver, was definitely kind of forced in that direction in many respects. If you got good at security, eventually it was usually dead man's boots. You'd suddenly get told, all oh, right, you're going into, we want you to be the manager there. And in some ways you were looking at it going, well, I, I like the pay rise, but can I keep the job? I, I don't necessarily want to, to, to be responsible for all of this. Yeah, I like that idea of just rolling. You know, I mean, I've I've always when I've mentored people and brought people into Razorthorn who are quite young in their career, I've always said to them, you need a good grounding. You need to do a bit of everything. So I'll teach you about governance, and then the pen testers will teach you about the pen testing, and then you'll sit with the you know the the auditors, and you'll see the boring shit they have to do or the exciting stuff they have to do. If people find that exciting, I don't know who does, but some people must. And keep it keep it nice and fluid and keep it solid. And then you're going to have people who are, they're going to change things up in their career. So maybe if they were pen testing before, they suddenly go into DevSecOps because they've had an interest, you know, and it, it shifts it shifts that role, you know, that that individual in that role into an area where it's nice, new and relatively fresh. They don't burn out and they also get additional skills. And it means somebody else can roll into the role that they left, maybe somebody who's younger in their career and then have the similar kind of experience. I like that concept. I like yeah, that. I think I think on that, that's what most grad schemes look like. You know, you have a rotation where you might be in a particular functional area for a couple of months. And then especially for junior candidates, graduates, they can then decide what they enjoy, what they want to go into. But then they have that base level of having experienced different sections of the business. Um, you know, one of my one of my best friends works for British Airways. And within that, he worked within the PR team. He did check-in for three months. He actually did a, a massive digital transformation. You know, he knows more about plug sockets and why than I do and I'm the one that works in IT so having that you know if we could do that at a security level like you described hey you're going to move around every you know six weeks you'll do like half a term within each section you know why couldn't we do that as adults why can't we say okay every six months you're going to just not necessarily shift massively but you're going to move slightly everyone moves slightly to the left and see what happens and there's a business benefit redundancy and skills transfer mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have multiple people in the team who know how to do the other job so it's not just about, about the burnout aspect, which is bad for business, but also all of these other problems that we have to address. But it's um, I'm driven by intellectual curiosity. I love learning how something works. Once I've worked out how it works, I'm not interested in doing it again. Mm. I'm sure I'm not the only one in the industry, you know, who's like that. Yeah, you're definitely not there. But no, you again, you make a you make a good point there. You know, yeah, things can be so much more varied if if we start considering other areas of business that we can get into. My consultants, what I always say to them, we have the standard utilization rate that many consultancies do, which is 70%. 70% of your time should be in billable work as a general rule. But I've always said to them, when, when I first became a consultant years and years ago, if my employer could send me out every single day to a new place, they would do. And I saw a lot of consultants going down a very dark path with the pub and all the rest of it because they're away from home. They're away from home every single day. They're sat in a hotel room out in Liverpool, out in Aberdeen. They're away from home, away from their friends, the family, the kids, their missus, their husband, whatever it may well be. And they are slowly dying inside. They end up going to the pub a lot more. What I do for my guys is I say to them, look, if there's specific projects you want to get involved with, then you get involved with them. You know, we're never going to say no. But equally, one week out of three in the month, 
you either work from home or you come into the office, but you do research. You look into something that's interesting to you, or you look into something you know that you want to improve. You don't like the project management template for our project management, you know, ISO 27001 sort of project stuff, then refine it. If there's problems with it and nothing's perfect, then refine it. But you do that on your choice. And the other one is, you know, I, I will rarely ever ask anybody to spend more than five days away from home in, in consecutive days, that is. And even if a customer says, oh, I want them for two weeks, it's like, no, you, you can have them for, if, if you can have them for the week and then that we've got other stuff that they need to do and they can come back and complete the, the the task, you know, the week afterwards. And it means they're not sat there for a weekend wondering what to do with themselves. I mean, it's nice when you're in a hot country with a beach, but let's face it, there's very few good customers in a hot place next to a beach. I know a few, got a few customers in Gibraltar. That's quite cool. But, you know, on the whole, I think it's important. So top tips. Have you guys got any top tips to, you know, on how to spot burnout? And how to nip it in the bud early. So I um, I think as IT professionals working security, we're very brain heavy. We think with our brains, we work with our brains. It's very intellectually challenging, which is what we enjoy, difficult, you know, highs and lows, etc. But we often don't think about our bodies. So I'm very basic in the way that I'm like, are you getting seven to nine hours sleep? I like eight to 10. Are you eating three healthy meals a day? I'm vegan. Are you making sure that you drink water? Are you getting outside away from a screen going for a lunchtime walk? Because I find if I start doing that, I need to go on. A, I'm like a, I'm like a small dog. If I don't go for my lunchtime walk every day, like by the afternoon, I'm totally fried and I can't work and I'm not productive. So for me, one of the best ways to prevent workout, like I've done it before, like social rhythm therapy is just, okay, Am I having too much caffeine? Am I am I sleeping, eating, um, you know, social interaction? Because if you sit staring at your screen in a room, stressed, don't interact with anyone and lo- lose track of time of day or, or day of the week, that is probably the fastest way to burn out. So it's about thinking about your body and not just your mind. You've just described most of my life there. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, go. I'll shut up. Yeah, I, I also, I always tend to look at balance. I, I tend to make sure, I, I try to avoid burnout. That's the first thing, right? I try to not even get there. To, just like Stefania said, it's like you have to have a bit of a well-rounded um, life. It can't just be one thing. But if you do get to that point, I try to ask myself, is it the job or is it me? Mm. Is it my behavior? Is it something that's external? If it's external, I'll be honest, there's very little you can do. The best thing you can do is change jobs. That's my honest advice. If, if, if you're being pressured to that degree, don't take it on your shoulders. It's not worth your help. Absolutely. However, if it's your behavior, if it's you, start being mindful. You know what, what Stefania said about basically going out, we, we think of mindfulness as something where you meditate. It's not. It's taking those five minutes to look at the sky. It's taking the time to eat and chew your food and enjoy your food. It's taking time to actually soak in what you're watching on TV and not multitask. And that mindfulness, because we have, we've been habituated to multitask all the time, that's actually a challenge. So if that's a problem, that's the first thing you need to fix. You will find that you are constantly exhausted isn't really traditional burnout. It is because you're constantly distracted. So I think it's working on your habits, making sure that you replace some of those bad habits with good habits, yeah. Absolutely. And and taking time out as well. I'm, a, I'm the worst one for that one. My, my partner's always saying to me, you know, we need to go on a holiday. We haven't been on a holiday in like three years. It's like, well, we haven't been able to go on a holiday in the last two. Funny, well, I don't know if it is funny, but uh, 
I do a lot of kind of reenactment stuff. I dress in armor. I hit people with weaponry. That's what I do for fun. And I haven't been able to do that for two years. And I'm a, I'm 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 going to my first one in two years in in a couple of months' time. So there's going to be some meticulous violence and and drinking of ale, you know, in a very kind of like Viking fashion, no doubt. But you know what I do is I just stop and I just stop working. At the end of the day, if if it gets to the point where you can't think straight you can't work through a problem that you know if you were working through you know in the right mind you could probably do it in five ten minutes maybe 20 minutes with a a whiteboard and a coffee or in Stefania's case a smoothie at that point you have to turn around and go no if I, I I can work try to do this and I'll spend three hours trying to work through my head and I'll get more frustrated I'll get more stressed out it's like when you were a kid playing a video game you get to a level, you can't do the level, you're dying constantly, constantly, constantly. You get stressed out and you start trying to tear up the, the the controller or throw it across the room. And then you go away, you go to sleep, you wake up in the morning, you come back and before your parents are awake, you pick up the same game again, you think, oh God, I've got to try this. And boom, you go straight through, no problems, everything's all sorted. A lot can be learned from gaming. But that's what I do. I just, I just shut that down. Even if it's a situation, unless it's a situation with life and death, it's not. It's not going to be important enough that, that you can't give it a couple of hours or you can't give it till the next day. And I say that to a lot of people, actually. Stop stop it. You're not going to do this. Or if you do, you're going to... You know, it's like over-exercising. I've over, you over-exercised that muscle and you're going to snap it. Don't snap it. Just let it rest. It'll hurt for a bit, but, but you'll come back fresh and you'll come back sign. And that's what I do. I just stop. Go outside. Kind of like what Stefania does, but normally it's outside, down the road, to the pub, into the pub, have a pint, read a book. But yeah, and for all of you out there, you know, if you are suffering from from burnout, Oliver makes a really good point. There's either an external thing that's making you burn out, you're getting under pressure, under stress, too much work or whatever. If you're in that situation, then you can walk away and it's right to walk away because it's only going to get worse. If it is you that's burning out, then it's time for you to take some time away. You can always come back. That's not a problem. But I've been in that situation where the company I'm working for, and it's luckily it's never been a, a customer, before I started Razorthorn, a company I worked for just wouldn't get it. They didn't understand. They didn't care. Everything I did fell on deaf ears. And I walked away from that. I got to the point where it was just like, what's the point? I've done, it's like trying to t- teach a dog to talk. Eventually, you just give up. fantastic well thank you ever so much guys for being part of the podcast hopefully you guys out there will see us all again these guys have signed up for a variety of different topics over a variety of different things please feel free to like and subscribe Uh, but thank you Oliver thank you Stefania and we'll see you again soon for another podcast speak soon bye thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.